I'm just um, curious, how, how many of you have problems? <laughs> just kind of clarifying who I'm talking to here. Turns out my friend Ken, a lot of you know Ken Dockery. Ken Dockery has an expression. He said it's mostly people that have problems. And it's true because all people, everybody has problems. It's part of being a human on a broken planet full of broken people. But all problems are not the same problem. Um, there's all kinds of problems. And we all take our lumps, right? Uh, Max Lucado actually had a great quote about that. He said, life is lumpy. But a lump in your oatmeal and a lump in your throat and a lump in your breast are not the same kind of lumps. So today we're gonna talk about big lumps. Today we're gonna talk about real problems, the kind that bring like real fear and pain and heartache and despair. And you've had them. You've had them. Maybe you're dealing with some now. Um, maybe your lump came in the form of an unwanted doctor's diagnosis or divorce papers. Maybe your lump came when your kids got in trouble or when you got in trouble. Or maybe your lump came when you lost the job or you lost your temper or you lost the house, or you lost control. Or maybe your lump was when she said no, or when he said goodbye. Maybe your lump was the loss of someone you love, or the betrayal of someone that you thought would never hurt you. Maybe you've been let down by your friends, or your family, or your church. And maybe, maybe your lump was a team you didn't make or a job you didn't get or a dream that just didn't come true. We've all had our lumps, right? I mean, I know a lot of your stories and some of them are, are pretty lumpy. And the big lumps are hard and not just because of the pain that they cause but because of the questions that they bring up. Like, where's God? when this is happening to me, if he really cares, if he's really all-powerful, why would he let this happen? I mean, you know, why hasn't he answered my prayers? Has God lost control? Has he just lost interest? Is, is this his great plan for my life? We all go through these horrible seasons of life. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Yes, I always like to start with something kind of light. Uh, but there's good news uh, in the lumps. Uh, one is it's understandable that you feel that way and that you have those questions. And also, you're not the first person to have them. I mean, even the people that we see as heroes in the Bible, they took their lumps and they dealt with really hard questions like this. In fact, today we're gonna look at a story in the Bible and we're gonna see if it can give us any help. Um, either you know, theologically or practically, or hopefully both, as we face these lumps in life and the questions that they inevitably bring up. And this story is actually the second part of maybe the most famous story in the Bible. It's, it's the Christmas story. Everybody knows the Christmas story, right? Even if, you're, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard the story and you've read the story and you've sung songs about the story. And you've mailed cards with pictures and poems about the story. 
and you've decorated your homes with nativity scenes to depict the story. But best of all, we've been to kids' plays at church where kids dress up as Mary and Joseph and the angels and the wise men and sheep and donkeys and stars and they sing and they show and they tell this awesome story of God becoming a baby man. And you know, you know the story so well. It's like watching a rerun of a sitcom that you've seen a hundred times, right? And you're like mouthing the words as they're saying them. You, you know this story and it always starts, the play always starts the same, right? It's Mary and Joseph and they're on the way to Bethlehem, and she's riding on a donkey because she's about to have a baby, and they get to town, and everybody's booked up, and the innkeepers all say the same thing. Sorry, there's no room, but one really nice hotel owner says that they can use his barn, and they're, you know, in the barn in the silent night with a manger and a sheep and angels and shepherds and a star and a cow and a drummer boy. <laughs> Baby Jesus is born and the wise men come and we all know how many there were. There's no reason to think there were three of them. Uh, but you know, that's how many kids they have for the play. So that's what we get. Um, they do give him three gifts, gold, <laughs> frankincense, and myrrh, and even though you don't know what frankincense or myrrh are, uh, you know, at this point in the program, look, the kids are cute, and they're singing joy to the world, and the sets are starting to fall down, and we got plenty of pictures, so we just wrap it, right? And Mary and Joseph are, like, all proud and cute with their little doll, baby Jesus, and you know, they all live happily ever after, closed curtain, end of story. But is it? Is, is that how the story of the genesis of Jesus ends in Matthew chapter two? Is the, is the, the reason Matthew wrote chapter one and two just to tell us this really cute, really awesome story of God becoming a man baby. I mean, obviously that's, you know, great stuff. But is that the whole story? Because theologically, that's, it's true, and it's important, and it's, and it's rich, but in some ways, practically, this story is just not that relatable for most of us. Um, just show of hands, how many of you in your real life have experienced a virgin birth? Like, not that many, right? <laughs> how many of you in your real life know a shepherd or an angel? How many of you own a hotel, right? How many of you are donkeys? Right? Not, not that, a couple of donkeys, not, 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 that, not that many. But in your real life, how many of you have experienced huge disappointment? 
and tragedy and fear and pain. It's everybody. So today, we're going to read through the rest of the Christmas story, and we're going to call it Silent Night Part 2, the sequel. Right? And Matthew's going to tell us a story that I'm warning you now is much less joyful and much less happy and much less cute. And it's actually a story of a young family taking some serious lumps and going through some terror and tragedy and disappointment that's hard for us to even imagine. But we're going to try. So we're going to pick this up in Matthew chapter 2 if you've got your phones or Bibles or whatever you do. And remember as we're reading this, in this story, Mary and Joseph are the good guys. Okay, they're, they're not being punished or something. They're the good guys. All they've done so far in this story is obey God. All they've done in this story so far is say yes. And Matthew's going to unpack this story for us like a play. And it's not a comedy. It's, it's a tragedy. And he's going to show it to us in three little scenes, three, like three acts of this play. And each one is tragic and horrible and disappointing, and then kind of strangely, he's going to end each act with a reference to an Old Testament prophecy. So you guys ready? Act one. This is Matthew 2, verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, and stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with a child and his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. So, I mean, can you even imagine? You're a teenage couple. You've already had a pretty rough nine months, right? You've this weird pregnancy thing, and now everybody in the town thinks you're crazy, and now you've, you know, had your baby in a barn far away from your family and your parents and your pediatrician like wh what are they thinking right what, what's going on what, what are they praying I'll tell you what they're praying God we need some help man this is this is hard we said yeah we said yes to you but this is this is we're just kids so God if you can and if you care, let's make things better for us. And then imagine you pray that prayer. And the answer to that prayer is you find out that soldiers are on the way to kill your baby. So in the middle of the night, you, what? You grab your baby and, and you, you grab some diapers and, and you grab whatever you can carry and you run out into the desert full of bandits and snakes and heat and you walk or ride a donkey for probably weeks to Egypt where you have exactly zero family and zero friends and no house and no job and no prospects. If you're Mary and Joseph, now what are you thinking, right? And now what are you praying? And I'll, t I'll tell you what you're praying. I'll tell you what they prayed. Like, God, where are you? Have you, have you lost control? Or have you, have you lost interest? It, is this the plan that you have for my life? 
And then Matthew ends this scene with this weird line, which is a hyperlink. Remember, we talked about that last week. Here's how he ends this little scene. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I have called my son out of Egypt. Act two. This is verse 16, Matthew 2, 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. And I'm going to tell you, this scene almost never gets into the kids' programs uh, at church. But, I mean, can like, why? Because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk. Can you even imagine? These soldiers are just, this is a little town. And these soldiers are just marching through this town, grabbing babies and grabbing toddlers out of their parents' arms and killing them. I mean, what could have been going through people's mind when this is happening? What could have been going through Mary and Joseph's mind? Like, what is happening? What is happening in our lives and what is happening in our world? The government is killing all the baby boys and it's our baby boy that they're after. It's just, it's just horrible. And now, for sure, they're praying, God, where are you? Have you lost control? Have you lost interest? Is this really your plan for my life? This story is it's just like each scene gets worse, right? It's just horrible. But then Matthew adds another weird line, and it's actually also a hyperlink back to the Old Testament. This is verse 17. It says, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, a cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great, weeping and great mourning, and Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted for their dead. So while he's telling this story, Matthew is hyperlinking us back to another story in the Old Testament of where the children of Israel were attacked and killed and hauled off to Babylon as slaves. And, and the Babylonians like destroyed the city and burned down the temple. It's, it's, it's the worst thing that ever happened to Israel. So Rachel that it's talking about is Jacob's wife. And Israel is like, like God's children, right? And so, uh, parents, maybe you'll agree with me when I say this. Is there anything worse than watching your children suffer? Nothing, right? You'd gladly rather suffer yourself. There is nothing worse than watching your children suffer and in pain. So the scene that Matthew is like hyperlinking us back to is just this utter horror and devastation that are happening to the children of Israel. And, and God is the father of Israel, and Rachel is like the mother of Israel, and they're just, they're just wrecked because they're watching their children, they're watching their babies drug away from the life that God had given them into slavery and into death. And it's like all God and his people could do was just cry and mourn, they're just, so, they're just so crushed that God and Rachel are just weeping in despair like parents watching their kids suffer. Fun story, don't you think? Just so uplifting. Um, Act three, verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, get up. And take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who wanted to kill the child are dead. 
So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother, and it's like, finally, right? Finally, after all the humiliation of this spontaneous pregnancy, after you know, having a baby in the barn in the dirt, away from your family, and after running out in the desert in the middle of the night in terror for your baby's life, and after the horror of all of these baby boys massacred, finally, something goes right, and Herod dies, right? And now it's safe, and now finally they're going home, and Mary's gonna see her family. She probably hasn't seen her family, what do you think? Like three years, maybe? since she's seen her family, and now they're gonna introduce Jesus to his grandparents and his aunts and his uncles and his cousins. They're gonna, you know, Joseph will get his old job back, right? And, and, and they're gonna get on with their lives and raise their son, and finally, God's heard our prayers, you know? And finally, our dreams are gonna come true, and finally, we're gonna live happily ever after. But, verse 22, when Joseph learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. And then after being warned in a dream, they left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. That's how you pronounce it, Nazareth. <laughs> it's like the facial, like Nazareth. Uh, they did not want to live uh, in Nazareth. And we don't, we don't really know what was so bad about it. We know it was kind of a dirty little nothing town, but I don't, we don't know what was so awful about Nazareth, but something was wrong with that town. Uh, in fact, when, remember this story, this is John 1 or John 2. John like discovers the Messiah, right? He meets Jesus and he goes and he tells his brother and he tells his partners, oh, you're not gonna believe it, man. We've been waiting all these years. I just met the Messiah. He's from Nazareth, he's awesome. And Nathaniel goes, ho, 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 ho. Look, dude. That is not the Messiah, because there is no way the Messiah is coming from Nazareth, right? In fact, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? In fact, later, after Jesus is being accepted, the whole world is seeing that Jesus is the Messiah. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and they didn't believe in him. The whole world was believing him, and the town of Nazareth didn't. So I don't know exactly what was wrong with Nazareth, but apparently it was just a horrible town of horrible people. And what I do know is Mary and Joseph did not want to raise Jesus in Nazareth. They probably wanted to be in Bethlehem, right? The city of David and Joseph's ancestral home, right? Or maybe like plan B, Jerusalem, the holy city of God. But instead, after all they've been through, they get plan Z, right, Nazareth, just one more disappointment for Mary and Joseph. So, yeah, Silent Night Part Two, it really is, it's like a three-act play, and three acts are all full of terror and tragedy and disappointment, but Matthew really strangely ends each act with a comment about a prophecy. Even this act, look what he says, this is verse 23, he's talking about moving to Nazareth, and he says, this fulfills what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. And close curtain, and that's Silent Night, part two, the sequel. So 
what a horrible story, right? And Mary and Joseph did everything right. They did everything right, and their lives were a disaster. And these people believed in God. I've got to assume these were people of prayer. I've got to assume they were praying, and they just kept praying for their life to get better, and their life just kept getting worse. So last week, we talked about the differences between biblical theology and systematic theology. And if you were here for that, you know that biblical theology is more like philosophical, it's more academic, and the whole idea behind biblical theology is we look at the Bible for one reason, and that is so that we can better know God. That's biblical theology. And then systematic theology is more practical. And so systematic theology is about reading the Bible for help in our lives or for instructions on how we can live the life that God has for us. So we're trying to look at all of these stories in Matthew through both lenses, right? So let's, let's first think about like a biblical theologian. How would a biblical theologian look at this story? And I'll tell you how they would look at it. They would ask what they always ask, which is what does this story teach us about God? So I think you might say that this tragic story teaches us about God's omniscience, that God sees everything, that God knows everything, and about God's sovereignty, that God is in complete control. Because in this story, even things got crazy. Matthew keeps reminding us that all of this stuff was just prophecies being fulfilled. That God knew all along that all this stuff was gonna happen. That he knew people would mess things up. And that God knows that he's given man the, the dignity and the freedom of free will and to choose good or evil for ourselves. And the results of a lot of those choices are a world full of pain and death and slavery and soldiers killing babies and families running out in the middle of the night. But God's not surprised or overwhelmed by that. So does human evil cause unbearable pain and suffering? Yeah. Does it catch God off guard? No. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Does it stop God's good plan from happening? Did all of that stuff keep Jesus from coming and saving the world? No, because he's omnipotent. He has all power, and he has complete sovereignty. He's in complete control. So even in this broken world full of all the pain of human evil, God's plans always prevail. And it may not be in our timing, and it may not be in the way that we would picture, but God's plans never fail. God's still in control, even when the world's out of control. And I think a biblical theologian would look at this story and say, yeah, it's about God's omniscience. It's about God's sovereignty, and it's about God's um, compassion. Because we see this image of God like Rachel crying over Israel going into exile and weeping over these children being hurt. So like, where is God when the brokenness of this world causes us just unbearable suffering and pain and loss? Where is God when that's going on? And this story shows us he's weeping for us. and He's crying over us like you would if your child was being bullied, like you would if your child was being hurt. In fact, God's love and compassion for humanity was so great 
that he refused to settle for sympathy. He refused to settle to just know our pain. He chose empathy. He chose to join us in our pain. I think a biblical theologian would say this story is about God's omniscience and his sovereignty and his compassion and about how much God values humility, right? I mean, he has Jesus come from Nazareth, this horrible town, not as a, not as a king on a cloud, you know, not as this great knight on a white horse, but God comes as a helpless, weak baby of scared, beaten down teenage parents. And this is like, this is a pretty consistent theme throughout the Bible. In fact, Isaiah 53 describes the coming Messiah as a suffering servant. I bet you know this passage. It says he was nothing special to look at. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And it's all about his betrayal and how he was forgotten and treated like a criminal and, and tortured and killed. It's about God's value of humility. Um, do you see how Jesus couldn't have come as a Kardashian? <laughs> right? He, he, not like beautiful and rich and, and popular and privileged. He couldn't do that because he wanted to empathize with the rest of us. He wanted to join us in the worst parts of the human experience. He really wanted to know and experience terror and tragedy and disappointment. I think a biblical theologian would say this story is all about God's omniscience and his sovereignty and his compassion and his love of humility and about the importance of God's presence in the pain and the tragedy of this life. Because what's, what's his response, right? What is God's response to the pain and despair of this life? He didn't look away. He didn't look away. And he didn't just like pull humanity out of the pain. He came. And he joined us in the pain. He, he joined us in the struggle. It really, it reminds me of the story. Remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? the Hebrew boys, and they wouldn't bow down and worship the king because they would only worship God. And so what happened to them? Fiery furnace, right? They tied them up and they brought them out in front of everybody and they threw them in this fiery furnace. And Jesus did not quench the fire. And Jesus did not take them out of the fire. Jesus joined them in the fire. And he walked through the fire and he walked out of the fire with them. And even though they did have to go through the terror, right, and the humiliation of being tied up and thrown in this fire and, you know, being publicly shamed and all that, the Bible says that when Jesus finally got them out of it, they didn't even smell like smoke. So I think a biblical theologian would look at this story of pain and despair and disappointment and say, it teaches us about God. It teaches us that he's sovereign and he's compassionate and he loves humility and he is present in our world, even when our world is horrible. Maybe especially when our world is horrible. I think that's the way a biblical theologian would look at this story. And a systematic, a practical theologian would look at this story and they would say what they always say, which is, so what? 
right? How, how does this apply to our lives, right? How does, how does this apply to our world now? A, a, I, th I think a systematic theologian would say, what about somebody that says, look, I see all the stuff about God, that's great, but I'm dealing with hard stuff in the real world, right? In my world, I, I'm dealing with tragedy and disappointment and betrayal and loss and pain of my own. And, and I'm, 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 you know, God's that way up there, right? But I'm broke and I'm sick and I'm lonely and I'm hurting down here. And my life is lumpy and I'm worn out and I'm prayed out and I'm, I'm asking, where is God? And, and has he lost control? And has he lost interest? And is this his plan for my life? I think a systematic, a practical theologian would ask, can knowing all this stuff about God help us at all when we're taking these brutal lumps in our real life? And you know, I think it can because when we're going through terror and tragedy and disappointment and pain, this story reminds us whatever lumps you're experiencing right now, this story's for you. And it's to remind you that God knows what you're going through. He's omniscient, he knows everything. And he knows the pain of living in a broken world full of evil people. But even in your broken world, he has a plan for your life. And it's a plan for good. And his plan will prevail, because it always does. And he may not prevent all your pain. And he may not answer all your prayers. And he may not, may not fix all your problems. But his plan for you is good. And nothing in this world can stop his plan from happening. And his plan is that someday he's going to fix what's broken. Someday. He's going to restore and redeem his creation. And he's going to undo all the evil that humans have done to hurt us. And John, someday, right? John saw a vision of that day. And he wrote about it in Revelation 21. Look at this. This is Revelation 21 too. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow crying or pain because now all these things are gone forever and the one sitting on the throne said look I'm making everything new this story reminds us here now in our terror in our tragedy in our disappointment God still knows what's going on and he's still in control. His plans are still in effect. And it reminds us that God not only knows what you're going through, 
He cares what you're going through. In fact, until that day of total salvation and, and total redemption, until he makes all things new, until he wipes away every tear, God's not looking away. He's crying with you. Just like Rachel, crying over God's people. In your times of tragedy and terror, you can remember that God's with you. And, and he knows what you're going through because he chose to go through it too. And he could have looked away or he could have watched from a distance, but he chose to come and be with you. Hebrews 13, five reminds us he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll, he'll never fail you. He'll never abandon you. He may not fix all your problems and he may not answer all your prayers and he may not make all your dreams come true, but he's with you in the fire to empower you, to get you through, to encourage you, to hold you up. So, yeah, lumps and trouble and terror and tragedy and disappointment, they're part of life in this broken world. Real tragedy and terror happen to everybody, even to Mary and Joseph, and they're gonna happen to us. So I don't know, like, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your lumps are. You know, maybe right now your life is really lumpy. I don't, I don't know. But I do know this. From the story of Silent Night Part Two, God knows exactly what you're going through. And his plan of healing and redemption is still in effect. And it will happen. And not only does God know exactly what you're going through, God cares, and he's crying with you. And he loves you so much that he came for you. And even here, and even now, in lumps, he comes to be with you in his spirit and in his people. And someday, he's gonna come in person to finally execute this plan. And he's gonna write what's wrong. And he's gonna dry every tear. And he's gonna make all things new. And that is the promise of Silent Night Part Two, the sequel. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us these real people living a real life. It was really hard. And I know they were praying, get me out of this, make it better. And it just seemed like it just kept getting worse. And God, I know that there are people in this room right now that feel the exact same thing. Their lives are filled with terror and tragedy and pain and disappointment and betrayal and loss, frustration. And God, I just pray that you will help us, right? Help us to see who you really are in this story, to see that you are absolutely omniscient. You are never caught off guard. That you are absolutely sovereign. You're in complete control. That you care about what's going on in our lives so much that you chose not to watch us from a distance, not even to pull us out of the fire, but to join us in the mess. 
So God, remind us of who you are and remind us that even in our terror, even our hardest times, even when things are darkest all around us, we can know that you never change. And just like you knew their story and you cared about their story and you came to join them in their story and you ultimately brought redemption in their story, help us to remember that you never change, that you know our stories and you care about our stories and you've come to join us in the mess and that someday you'll come back in person and execute your plan and make all things new and make all things right and dry every tear. Thank you for the promise of your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.